Today we begin a four-part series on the book of Esther, and I realize we've kind of jumped around a bit, so before we get into the text itself, let's kind of remind ourselves where Esther falls in the history of Israel. So about 1400 BC, God brings the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, and in our sermons this year, we saw some of their wilderness wanderings. We saw them enter the land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, and we saw those cycles of judgment and restoration under the judges. Then we saw in the book of Ruth that God was preparing for the coming of a king, a king after his own heart who would rule Israel well. Then we have David and his son Solomon. But after that, the kingdom is divided. There are some good kings, there are many bad kings, And for their idolatry, God promises to judge his people with foreign conquerors. And so then in 605 BC, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Judah and begins to take many of them into exile, including people like Daniel and his friends, and later the prophet Ezekiel. But in 539 BC, the Persians conquer Babylon, and the Persian king Cyrus decrees that the people of Israel who have been exiled for 70 years now may return to Jerusalem. And that's the beginning of what is often called the Restoration Era, when the Jews are restored to the land of Israel after being in exile. We see the events of this Restoration Era described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, And we see the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi written during this time. But the other book we have from this Restoration Era is a little bit different. It's the book of Esther. So not all the Jews who had been exiled returned to the land. Some stayed in Babylon and in Persia. Some had attained positions of authority and influence in this Persian Empire. Some had built uh, flourishing businesses and had homes that they loved. They had taken the prophet Jeremiah's counsel to heart. They had sought the welfare of the city where God had planted them. So many Jews remained in Persia during this restoration era, and the book of Esther is a story about them. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious King. You have called us to yourself. You have cleansed us of sin that we might come into your holy presence. Speak to us now from the scriptures that we might see your glory and majesty, that we might render you the obedience of faith. We ask it in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, the book of Esther begins with a kingly feast. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. I have a map to show you so you can kind of get your bearings set here. All this green area is the Persian Empire and the lands that they controlled. And I have uh, two cities circled in red. On the left side here, you see Jerusalem. 
Uh, now, none of the action in Esther takes place in Jerusalem. Just know that Ezra and Nehemiah and all the exiles who return to the land are there working away, rebuilding the temple, uh, and all that stuff is going on during the same time period. But then you see more than 700 miles to the northeast, on the right there, you see the city of Susa. And this is in present-day Iran. Susa is one of four capital cities for the Persians, and it's kind of the winter home of the Persian kings. Uh, Daniel had spent some time there. Nehemiah was there when he served in the king's court. And this is where the story of Esther takes place. And in Susa, the Persian king Darius the Great had built a lavish palace. And the next slide is an artist's reconstruction of that for you. Not bad, right? Good vacation there. That could be your winter home. Uh, you can see the palace grounds, and you can see the pools. Uh, you see these lush, cultivated gardens. The Persians called these gardens paradida, from which we get our word paradise. And you can see the city there in the background of that picture. This is the palace that we read about in Esther, or something like this. Now, there's some question as to which of the Persian kings is being portrayed in the book of Esther. Because outside of the Bible, there is no uh, mention of a king named Ahasuerus. But this is probably an alternate title for one of the kings that we do know about. I think Ahasuerus is probably Darius the Great, the king who built that palace. But most scholars think Ahasuerus is King Xerxes, Darius's son. Uh, luckily, for the purposes of the story, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so we won't concern ourselves with that any longer. But the text tells us that in the third year of this king's reign, King Ahasuerus, he throws this great feast for all his officials and servants. And what's the goal of this feast? Verse 4 tells us, to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So for six months, this king is going to host people so that they can see his city and his palace and marvel at his greatness. And at the end of those six months, verse 5 tells us, he threw another feast lasting seven days for all the people in the citadel, in the palace and the grounds, both small and great in the court of the garden of the palace, in the paradise if you will. And then we get the description of this king's palace. Now see if any of this echoes other structures you know from the Bible. Verse 6, there were white, curtain, white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. Now, what other king in the Bible has a house with white curtains, with violet and purple hangings, with pillars, with gold and silver, with a couch of gold, with golden vessels, and with precious stones? God. God has a house like that, doesn't he? All those same things are found in the tabernacle and later the temple of Israel. 
So those who have their ears turned to the uh, symbolic world of the Bible can't help but see King Ahasuerus and his palace of paradise as a picture of God in his temple. And I think this clues us into the way that we are supposed to read the rest of the book of Esther. I think that like Ruth, like Jonah, the story of Esther is actually the story of Israel. And this is helpful because one of the unique things or strange things about the book of Esther is that it never mentions God in the whole book. It's the only book in the Bible that never says the name of God or mentions him. But he's all over the pages of the book of Esther. Now, not every interpreter of Esther reads the book in this way as a picture of God and his relationship to Israel. For some, it's merely an inspiring story of great faith in the face of persecution. And it is that. For others, it's, it's just a story to explain the origin of the Jewish feast of Purim. We'll learn more about that at the end of the book. Uh, and it does explain where that feast came from. For others, Esther is a scandalously lewd comedy of errors, a vaudeville show that somehow snuck its way into the scriptures. Now, to be sure, there are some strange and scandalous things in this story. Now, there's some validity, some importance to all these readings, but ultimately, I think we should read the story of Esther typologically, allegorically, symbolizing this larger story of God's relationship with his people, Israel. But we do have to attend to the literal level first to do this. And so Ahasuerus throws this massive feast and he invites the whole empire into his presence. Verse 7 tells us more about this feast. It says, The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Now, that's another detail that's worth noting because throughout the prophets, we see that an abundance of wine is a unique sign of the Restoration Era, of what God is doing for his people Israel. This, this period of time when God redeems his people and restores them to their home, in that day, the prophets say, there will be an abundance of wine. Isaiah 25, 6 on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The prophet Joel writes this, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Talking about the conquest of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. The prophet Amos writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus is throwing this kind of feast for his people. The kind of feast that God promises he will throw for Israel when he restores them to the land. 
Now remember, it's these kings of Persia, first Cyrus, and then Darius, then Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. These are the kings that God chose to rule over Israel in their exile. Isaiah goes so far as to call Cyrus a Messiah, an anointed one of God, like David, like David's greater son, Jesus. And so in this time period, these Persians are God's chosen kings to protect his people, to uh, inspired by God, they are the kings who send the Jews back to Jerusalem and who fund the building of the temple and their return to the promised land. These are the kings who load the Jews down with gold and silver and vessels and livestock to be used in the worship of Yahweh. They are God's anointed ones. So it's very much in keeping with the themes of this period in Israel's history that we should see God's anointed king preparing a rich feast in a garden of paradise and inviting his people to join in because that's what God is doing with Israel too. So we have our king, but we need our queen, our bride. In verse 9, we first learn of Ahasuerus' bride, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And we'll talk more about her in just a moment. But then verse 10 tells us, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, people commonly think this means that the king was getting drunk, right? But the text doesn't say that. The Hebrew literally says, When the heart of the king was good with wine. The word for drunkenness is not present. Remember what Psalm 104 tells us. God created wine for this very purpose, to gladden the heart of man. And here in Esther, we, told, we are told that Ahasuerus' heart is glad with wine. Now remember, God drinks wine when he is at rest in his palace too. That's what all those drink offerings are about in the tabernacle and temple. Once the king has subdued his enemies, he enters into rest. He sits enthroned, and he celebrates and feasts, and he drinks wine in joy. And since he is putting his glory on display, the king wants everyone to see his greatest glory, which is his bride. The Apostle Paul tells us, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So on the seventh day, the king calls his seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, unfortunately, you might hear this sometime. Some later Jewish rabbis imagine that Ahasuerus asks Vashti to come to the party with nothing but the crown on, making this into some kind of perverted spectacle. But again, you don't see that in the Bible, do you? There's no reason to think Ahasuerus' request is ill-intentioned. He wants to present his bride in splendor as his glory. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. So notice, everything in paradise has been going well up to this point, right? Everything has been good and glorious in the story up to this point. All is going as it should. And the first conflict in the story is this. Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command. We're not told why. We're not told her motivation. The Bible usually doesn't tell us characters' motivations. 
And often our speculations about them just end up sending us off track because the only thing the author cares about is that the queen has refused to come at the king's command. So again, I want us to read this typologically. We've seen Ahasuerus is paralleled with God and the way his temple is described and the way his feast is described. Does God have a bride who he summoned to join his feast but who refused to come? Of course he does. Because the bride of God is his people, Israel. And God delivered them from Egypt and he planted them in the promised land to dwell in his presence. They were supposed to display God's glory to the world. But they did not obey. The queen refused. Israel rebelled against God. They did not obey his commands. They did not worship him. They refused his invitation And how does the king respond to his wife's rebellion? The text tells us, At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. His anger burned within him. You know, that's the same way that God's anger at Israel's rebellion is described. We'll see that in just a moment. So what are we going to do about Vashti? Well, what did God do when Israel rebelled against him? He sent them into exile. And one should know, that's what Ahasuerus does with Vashti. Look at verse 19. The king's wise men counsel him, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And so that's what the king does. He sends his bride into exile. Now, this refusal here of Queen Vashti, this only takes up a few verses in the first chapter of Esther, right? We're we're tempted to think it's just a, a minor plot point, just the setup for the real story of Esther. And we kind of forget about Vashti after this. But Vashti's refusal is actually a crucial point of the story. And it sets up a theme that's going to come back in this book. Disobeying God's anointed king is a bad idea. Disobeying the king could get you exiled or worse. And this is going to come up again when we see Mordecai's disobedience. So this refusal of Vashti is very important, and we need to keep it in mind. But it does bring us to chapter 2 then. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, in some ways, this is kind of where the analogy between Ahasuerus and God starts to break down, right? Uh, God commanded the kings of Israel not to take multiple wives. God certainly did not condone the keeping of a harem with all the sexual abuse and sin that goes along with that. These things are abominable in the sight of God. They are abominable violations of the dignity of people made in God's image and of the marriage covenant that God commands between husband and wife. 
So in this way, Ahasuerus shows us that he is like David and Solomon, uh, but not in a good way, right? Okay. But this parallel between God and Ahasuerus does hold up in another regard, and that's this. When God was spurned by his bride Israel, God turned to find a new bride. When Israel rejects God, God goes to the nations. We saw that in the book of Jonah uh, just a few weeks ago, didn't we? Consider these words from Deuteronomy 32. The Lord saw Israel's idolatry and spurned them. He said, I will hide my face from them, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. You hear how God's, uh, or I'm sorry, how Israel's rebellion made God's anger burn within him, just as we were told about Ahasuerus. And just as Ahasuerus now turns to look for a new queen, so God says he will turn away from Israel and go to the Gentiles. It's in our gospel reading for today too, isn't it? Jesus tells this parable about a king who throws a great wedding feast for his son, but the people he invites to the feast refuse to come, just like Vashti. And the king's anger burns, and he destroys those people. And then he sends his servants out into the highway and the hedges to find others who will attend the wedding feast. Now, that's not Jesus just telling some ancient melodrama. That's Jesus telling the story of Israel. That's Jesus prophesying what Israel will do to him in his day. The book of Esther is telling that same story. The bride who rejects the husband, and the husband goes elsewhere. Don't rebel against the king, or you'll find yourself shut out of the feast, and another will take your place. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, we begin to meet our other main characters. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther. Hadassah is a Hebrew name that apparently means myrtle, a uh, type of flower whose blossoms look like a shining star. And that could be why she was also given the Persian name Esther, which is related to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, because Ishtar was associated with the star we now know as Venus. Ishtar was also the goddess of love and war and fertility, and Esther will certainly be associated with some of these things as well. So he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we already get some insight into this Mordecai guy and what his character is like. He has faithfully obeyed God's commands to care for orphans. He has taken Esther into his household. And he not only provides for her, he loves her as if she's his own daughter. 
And so in this, we see Mordecai imaging forth the adopting love of God. All we know of Esther at this point is that she was lovely to look at. And the reason that's significant is because those are the very same words used to describe Queen Vashti in chapter 1, verse 11. So we already can kind of guess why this girl is being introduced into the story. Then we get verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now as I read this next part, see if this reminds you of any other characters in scripture. Verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Who else was taken into the household of a Gentile ruler and earned favor there and was advanced to a high position within that house? Joseph. Doesn't that remind you of Joseph? Right? He's in the house of Potiphar and he advances there. And then he's in the house of Pharaoh and he advances there. Esther is a new Joseph. And so let's kind of try to keep that typology in our minds as we go through this book as well. Esther is a new Joseph. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Well, this is kind of another way that Esther's like Joseph, because he hid his identity from his brothers for a time, didn't he? So we might ask this question, why does Mordecai command Esther not to make it known that she was a Jew? From what we know, the Persian Empire was not anti-Semitic. Uh, known Jews like Ezra and Nehemiah were high-ranking officials in the Persian court. The Persians had blessed the Jews with financial and political support to rebuild their temple and encourage them to worship their God. So it's not clear uh, why Esther's Jewishness has to be kept a secret uh, other than it's necessary for the plot later on, right? So that brings us to verse 11. Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He's concerned. He wants to know what God will do with this situation. And the text goes on to tell us that all these young women underwent 12 months under the law for women, a period of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments, all to give them the most glorious appearance and aroma in hopes that they would please the king when their turn came. Now I know, judging by our modern standards, we find this all a little bit degrading and kind of cringy. Again, harems and concubines, all that stuff, not okay with God, okay? Just to be clear about that, not okay. The story is not condoning those things either. It's just the realities of the ancient world and the situation into which the people of God have fallen. But again, we can see this typologically too. When you think of people going through a process of preparation where they are anointed with oil, where they bear myrrh and incense, and all in order to be made acceptable to enter into the king's presence, what does that remind you of? Isn't that the consecration of the priests? 
Very similar to this, right? It resembles the consecration of Israel's priests. They too had to undergo this period of cleansing and consecration of anointing before they could enter into God's tabernacle or temple and draw near to him in an acceptable manner. Now we've already seen that Ahasuerus is portrayed in temple imagery. So we can see Esther being consecrated for a kind of priestly service here in these preparations. It's almost as if she's being prepared to offer a sacrifice to somehow save God's people, right? That's interesting. Maybe we should hang on to that insight too. But let's skip now to verse 16. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, one of the major themes of the book of Esther is how do you live in exile? How do you live in exile? How do you live in the belly of the beast, in the heart of these huge Gentile emperors? So far, we've seen two options for Israel, right? They can be like Vashti. They can reject God. They can reject God's anointed king. They can disobey the word of their husband. But this is what got them in this mess in the first place. The message of Esther is clear. Rebel against the king and it will not go well for you. Alternatively, Israel in exile can be like Esther. Yes, Israel is in exile. Yes, they've been cast out of the land and forced into a strange new Persian world. Esther is an orphan. She's been cut off from her family. She's a symbolic exile. She's taken into the Persian palace. She's being asked to do very difficult things that she probably doesn't want to do. But how does she respond to her exile? She humbly serves where she is. This is what the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles to do, to seek the welfare of the city where God has planted you. You see Esther gaining the grace and favor of those around her, of those in authority over her. And she, therefore, advances to a position of greater authority and responsibility and influence, putting herself in a position where she can help her people. That's what Joseph did. And he was able to save all Israel from death by starvation. So already we're starting to see Esther's character, her wisdom, her shrewdness, her humility. And we're going to see more of that in the coming sermons. And so Esther is providing for the people of Israel an example of faithfulness in the midst of exile for the people of God. But perhaps more of our focus in this first section of the book has been on the king himself. Ahasuerus, God's anointed one. We've talked about him not because of his character, which was likely very flawed, but we have seen him as a picture of the true and greater king. He has taught us something about who God is and how God redeems his people. Our God is a mighty king. He has subdued all his enemies. He is enthroned in his paradise palace. And he displays his glory for all to see. 
And what does the victorious king do with all this power and all this glory? He invites all peoples to a great feast, people both great and small. But some are too arrogant to accept his invitation. Some choose rather to rebel against the king. Some choose merely to ignore him. This they do at their own peril. For the feast that they are rejecting is the feast of eternal joy. And outside of this feast there is only darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the lost, the broken, the widows and orphans, the meek and the poor in spirit, the king invites them to his feast as well. And they zip inside like they're afraid the door might slam shut on their coattails if they wait. Because they already know the outer darkness. They already know rejection and loss. And they are ready to step into the light. And so they love the king. And the king loves them. And the king pours out his grace and favor upon them. And he washes them with his baptismal waters. And he gets them all cleaned up. And he anoints their head with oil. And he makes sure their cup runneth over with the wine of abundance. And he jumps them right up from exiled outcasts to kings and queens. He wants these faithful stewards to rule at his side in his kingdom. Maybe that's Ahasuerus. Maybe that isn't. But that is the true king, Jesus. The Gospels tell us that's the kind of king he is. That's how he administers his great kingdom. The least is the greatest. The meek inherit the earth. And his grace and favor make orphans like us into sons and daughters of the great king who get to share in the feast of his glory. Let's pray. King Jesus, we honor you. For you gave yourself up for your bride. You defeated your enemies of sin, death, and Satan from your cross. You rose from the grave and you now sit enthroned in your paradise palace, reigning over all things, your glory on display for all who will see it. You have called us to join your feast. In your grace you have cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that you might present us in splendor, that we might be holy and without blemish in you. Let us not turn away from your feast. Give us faith to enter in and to rest in your love. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.